I think one of the most disconcerting things about the idea of living under law, like Canadian law, is this idea that ignorance is no excuse. You've heard people say that, right? Just because you didn't know something was against the law doesn't mean that you're not guilty of breaking that law. If you break it, you can't just walk around saying, well, I didn't know that I wasn't allowed to murder my neighbor. That's just not ignorance is no excuse. And I think what makes that really disconcerting as a principle of law is that there are a lot of laws that we don't know exist and probably are guilty of breaking. Um, did you know, for example, that in Petrolia, Ontario, it is illegal to whistle in public against the law? Now, I know people from Petrolia, and I think they're whistlers. And I don't think they know that they're breaking the law. <laughs> Canada has some weird laws about painting. Did, in Alberta, it's illegal to paint a wooden ladder. In Ottawa, it is illegal to paint your house purple. And in Baconsfield, Quebec, you can be sued for painting your house more than two colors. Did you know? In Oshawa, it's illegal to climb a tree on municipal property. My kids would be in jail right now. <laughs> in Ottawa, this, is a, this one I love. In Ottawa, it is illegal to eat ice cream on Bank Street on Sunday. And Monday, Tuesday, enjoy your ice cream. On Sunday, get that crap out of here. That is not allowed. <laughs> in Uxbridge, Ontario, this is the last one that I read about. In Uxbridge, Ontario, it is actually illegal to have a Wi-Fi connection that is faster than 56 kilobytes per second. So all you five subscribers in Uxbridge, lawbreakers, <laughs> right? We don't even know these laws exist, and that's no excuse. Just because you didn't know that stuff was illegal doesn't mean you're not guilty of it. And a lot of us are saying, well, I've never been to Uxbridge and paid for Wi-Fi. Yeah, well, you know what? I've lived in Ottawa, and I've been on Bank Street, lived about a 10-minute walk from Bank Street, and probably had ice cream, and it might have been on a Sunday. And I didn't even realize that I was a lawbreaker. And all of that makes me think about the second of the Ten Commandments, the one that we're going to look at today. It says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever, of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. When you worship God, do not make an idol, a statue, a form, a representation, a picture, an icon, anything to represent God in your worship. Now, I think... On the one hand, a lot of us are like, whew, okay, nine commandments that I need to worry about. I've literally never done this one, except maybe we all do in ways that we don't realize. What is this commandment about? Because I'll tell you, it's not about whether or not you have a statue or use art in worship or use your imagination. That has nothing to do with what the commandment is about. This commandment builds on the first commandment, which is about the who of worship, right? Last week, we talked about how God said, I am alone worthy of your devotion and love. I don't want you to love anything more than me, as much as me, instead of me, in competition as me. I want you to love me alone. That's the who of worship. This commandment is about the how of worship. How do we express our worship and love 
to God. And what the commandment says is, you do not resort to idolatry. You cannot make an image. Why? Well, I'll explain it in terms of the ancient world, and then I'll help us understand why this still matters to us. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, thinking back to this command, the writer of Deuteronomy says, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord, that's God's name, the day Yahweh spoke to you at Sinai out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. The writer of Deuteronomy, thinking about this commandment, says, listen, it's pretty straightforward. When God revealed God's self to Israel in the desert at Mount Sinai to reveal the Ten Commandments, God did not show them a form. What did they see when God revealed God's self? In Exodus 19, it tells us, this is the chapter just before the Ten Commandments. It says, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh had come down on it with lightning. The smoke went up like the smoke of a hot furnace. While the whole mountain shook violently, the blasts of the horn grew louder and louder, and Moses would speak, and God would answer Moses with thunder. When Israel came to Mount Sinai to meet with God and enter into a covenant relationship with God, and God showed God's self to Israel, he didn't, God didn't show himself to have a form. He, God descended on the mountain, and it was covered with thunder and lightning and smoke and fire, and it trembled like an earthquake, and God spoke out of the thunder, but there was nothing to see. And the writer of Deuteronomy says, since there was nothing to see, don't make a form. And here's why. Because in the ancient world, all worship was done with idols. Essentially, if you wanted to worship a God or needed to worship a God, you would go and either make for yourself or get a statue made and have it blessed by a priest so that the statue contained the life force of the God within it. And then you got to take it home. This was your little mini version of God. You got to carry it with you. You could own it and possess it and carry it wherever you went and have it in your home and put it on the shelf. And when you needed it, you took it off the shelf. And, and it was your way to access the life and power of the God, which was important because if you needed your crops to produce food or you needed your wife to produce children, you would get your fertility God off the shelf and you would offer sacrifices and pray for the God to give you what you wanted from your field or your spouse or whatever. You had to offer the right sacrifice in the right way at the right time using the right priest and the, um, the right phase of the moon and the right season and pray with the right words in the right way and all that. And if you did everything exactly pleasing to the God, then the God would give you the life that you wanted. This is the point of idolatry. Idolatry in the ancient world was about reducing God to a form that you could manage in order to use it to advance your own agenda. Or as uh, Patrick Miller says, to make an image is indeed an effort to domesticate God, to tame the fire and control it. Idolatry happens Anytime we try to reduce God to a form that we can understand and manage in order to control and manipulate 
for our own purposes. It's when we use God for our purposes. God says that is not okay. Here's the end of that commandment. It says, do not bow down to idols or worship them. This is Exodus 20 verse 5. Because I, Yahweh, am your God. Um, I'm a passionate or zealous or jealous God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, let's not misunderstand what God is saying. God is not saying, I'm an emotionally petty God. I'm a very small God. And if you don't love me, love me, love me, I'm going to be jealous, you know, in a real petty way. No, no, no. It's like a two spouses who have left the altar and promised their love to each other, they are rightfully entitled to be jealous for the exclusive love of their spouse. God says, I'm just jealous for your love for myself. God is not saying I'm a petty, vindictive God. You know, if you don't do everything the way I want, then I'm going to throw a temper tantrum and I'm going to just punish you all or whatever. It's like God is acknowledging that when we choose to go a way that's different than God's way, that those choices to sin have consequences. God is not being violent and saying, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lash out violently, not just at you, uh, but at your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids and third and fourth generation or whatever. No, no. Three or four generations are how many people live in a home together at the same time in an ancient household. God is saying, when you choose to sin and, and worship me in a way that's different than what I want, um, not only will you experience the consequence, but everyone around you will experience those consequences too. What God is saying is, I want you to worship me in the right way because I am jealous for your love and I am zealous to see you thrive and flourish and experience life. And I am passionate to bless you and not just you and your kids and your grandkids, but a thousand generations of those who love me. I just want to give you life. But in order to experience it, we have to resist the temptation to reduce God to a form that we can manage so that we can control and manipulate God to serve our agenda. That's what idolatry is. What does that look like in the church? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is writing to a group of churches in modern-day Turkey, and he talks about idolatry. This is what he says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. The, the apostle Paul says, you know who the idolaters are in, you know, the church age? Idolaters are people who just want what they want sexually or who don't care about sinful immorality or who are just greedy and gluttonous and covetous and so on. Um, those people worship idols. Because Paul says, here's the problem. 
He says, this is why he says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. He says, the problem is that in the church, what we often do is we want what we want sexually, or we, want, we don't want to obey, we want to sin, or we want to be greedy and gluttonous and covetous and whatever. We want to live the way we want to live. And so what we do is we find a way to biblically justify living however I want to live, and yet still we get to think about this as being faithful to follow Jesus. We kind of get to have our cake and eat it too. We, we get to believe that God is okay with us just pursuing our own agenda, right? What does it look like? I'll, I'll give you half a dozen examples. I think in North America in the 21st century, the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel is an idol. This belief that honestly, all of us share to some degree that God only wants us to be healthy and wealthy all the time. That's why we get mad when everything doesn't work out for us, when our privilege is violated. But we just, we reduce God to this God who only wants to bless us with good things as a way of justifying our comfortable lifestyle. I'll give you another one. We talked about it last week. I think happiness is an idol in the church. The number of times I've had people sit in my office over the last 24 years and say, well, I know that God doesn't want me to be unhappy. Therefore, dot, dot, dot. And usually the therefore is, therefore I'm leaving my spouse. Now that is not a commentary on all divorce, not by a long shot. It's a commentary on the ways that we reduce God to a supernatural being who wants us to be happy to justify the way we just pursue our own happiness. We've turned God into an idol. I think violence is an idol. Even in the church, we've, we've allowed ourselves to be convinced that Jesus is a fighter, not a lover. That when we ask, what would Jesus do in response to somebody who gets in Jesus' way? And the answer is Jesus would knock them on their behind. But I listened to a preacher say once that they couldn't worship the hippie Jesus because they couldn't worship a Jesus they can beat up. Where is Jesus' ability to beat people up? Anywhere in the Gospels. But we use that, we reduce Jesus to that kind of idol because we want to justify our violent verbal and physical outbursts towards people who get in our way. I think judgment is an idol. We've just become convinced that God looks down on and judges the very same people we look down on and judge, whether they're of a different race or whether they're of a different socioeconomic class or LGBTQ plus people. Remember, oh, look at that. God disapproves of the same people I disapprove of. We've reduced God to justify our agenda. I think politics is an idol in the church. If you're convinced that God fully endorses your political party and ideology and that God fully opposes the other political parties and ideologies, then you have reduced God to a political idol in order to justify your own political instincts. Honestly, finally, I actually think religion itself, theology can be an idol. If, if your conviction is that God agrees with every one of your spiritual opinions and God disagrees with everybody who disagrees with you, you have reduced God to an idol in order to justify your belief system so that you don't have to actually stop and ask whether there are ways that your beliefs need to change. Friends, we do it all the time. We worship God as an idol where we take the mystery of who God is and we reduce God to some form that we can possess and manage and control so that we can manipulate and use God 
to advance our own agenda. And God says, none of it. What God wants is to be worshipped for who God is, not reduced to an idol. What does that mean? To worship God for who God is. Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy 4. Remember I said, you didn't see a form, don't make a form. Well, the verse just before that says this, Yahweh spoke to you out of the very fire itself. You heard the sound of words, but you didn't see any form. There was only a voice. God says, I don't want to be known by what I showed you or how I appeared. I want to be known by what you heard me say. I want to be known by my voice. I want to be known. I am revealed by my word. What is it? How does God reveal God's self in his word? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth and made his home among us. Jesus Christ is God's voice to the world. Jesus Christ is what God has said to humanity. Jesus Christ is what God says to show us what God is like. No wonder in the New Testament, God says over and over again, Jesus is my son whom I love. Listen to him. In the New Testament, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of what God is like. So if we're going to worship God truly, according to what God is genuinely like and not reduce God to a form that we can use to advance our own agenda, we're going to worship the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. We're going to conform all of our thinking and believing and behaving and attitudes and actions and convictions to what we see and hear in Jesus Christ. We're going to submit all of our lives to walking in the way of Jesus until our lives look exactly like what we read about in the Gospels. Until our lives radiate the devoted love of God for the world, the radical love of inclusion and welcome and forgiveness and healing and hope and justice for the world, the radical love of God that we see in Jesus that pushes back against judgment and religiosity and injustice and exclusion. We will live what we see in Jesus, in Jesus' radical cross-shaped, sacrificial love, which opens the floodgates for the love of God to flood the world. Jesus laying down his power and privilege in order to lift people up into connection with God. We will live what we see in Jesus, which is somebody who always only ever set aside their own agenda in order to submit to the will of God in the world, who never chose sin, but who always chose love. Friends, every time we take God and reduce God to an idea or a form, every time we try and capture the mystery and jam it into a tiny box that we can own and possess and carry around so that we can tame and control and use for our own agenda, we are breaking the second commandment. We're committing idolatry. And God says, I'm 
passionate for your love, and I'm zealous to see you thrive in your humanity, and I long um, to bless you and to fill you with life, and the pathway to life is for us to worship the God we see in Jesus Christ and to allow and align our lives to be conformed to everything we see in Christ. That's the only way to worship a God that cannot be reduced to an idol. Let's pray. God, we confess that it is hard to let you be you uh, because then we can't be in control. Then maybe you're going to make us uncomfortable. Maybe you're going to Um, say things that we don't like to hear, or maybe you're going to call us to do things that are beyond or outside of our comfort zone, God. Um, And yet, when we look at the person of Jesus, when we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus says he alone is the way to experience genuine and abundant life. God, would you teach us to worship you in the beauty of who Jesus is, And would you teach us to give you everything that we are to live a Jesus-shaped life by the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's to your end that we pray. Amen.